check it out. Welcome to Anatomy of a Verse, the podcast that examines rap music and hip-hop culture one verse at a time. Today's episode is going to be like an interlude to get us ready for part two of the MF Doom story. Last time, in part one, Daniel Dumoulay went from black Muslim hippie Zevlov X to MF Doom, a metal-masked supervillain fighting against the commodification and commercialization of hip-hop. By using a raw and sloppy production style combined with masterful lyrics and intricate rhyme schemes, Doom created one of the most important underground hip-hop albums of all time, his solo debut, Operation Doomsday. But what I didn't mention was that around the same time, all the way on the other side of the country, there was another independent hip-hop producer doing something very similar. Guess who's a new black character in town? Causing mischief in your city? Spinning shit around. I smack a nigga with a brick. Talking out of place. Like I was sniffing paint. Lace. Flying up out of space. Or quas. This is Quasimodo, sometimes referred to as Lord Quas or the bad character. He's a mischievous and somewhat demonic entity who loves doing drugs, talking smack, and just being generally rude and disrespectful. And the man responsible for Quasimodo is a Los Angeles-based producer, DJ, and rapper named Otis Jackson Jr., a.k.a. Madlib. As the story goes, Madlib had gotten tired of listening to his own voice in his music. So, one day, after taking a bunch of psychedelic mushrooms, he got the idea to take one of his beats and slow it way, way down. And then he recorded himself rapping over that slowed down beat. I get high and start taking out whack niggas. The fly up in the sky and use my lyrics as a trigger. So that afterwards, when he sped the beat back up to its original tempo and pitch, his vocals were now high pitched sounding. Kind of like something from Alvin and the Chipmunks. I get high and start taking out whack niggas The fly up in the sky and use my lyrics as a trigger Always pull it, let the bullet slide through to the left This is what engineers refer to as variable speed pitch control or Verispeed for short Before Madlib had created Quasimodo he was making beats and rapping as part of a hip-hop trio called Loot Pack and they were signed to a small independent record label called Stone's Throw Records Here's the founder and president of Stone's Throw, Chris Manick, a.k.a. Peanut Butter Wolf, talking about the first time that he heard Quasimodo. You know, I, I appreciated Loop Pack for what it was, but on one of the tapes, on the, on the back side of it, was this guy with a high voice rapping over the beats. To me, it seemed like the beats were a little more experimental. The whole project was just to seem more experimental than Loop Pack. 
I asked Madlib about it. I was I, I found myself listening to that over and over, you know, and I, I asked Madlib, what is this? And he was like, oh, man, oh, I forgot that was on there. Yeah, you know, like you weren't even supposed to hear that. And I'm like, no, that's really good. Like, you know, I want to put that out, too. And he's like, really? Cool. I'm with it. Whatever. You know, fuck it. And what was originally supposed to be nothing more than a fun experiment turned out to be Madlib's golden ticket. In the year 2000, Stone's Throw released the first full-length Quasimodo album, The Unseen. And immediately, it was clear there was something undeniably intriguing about this music. Magazines and blogs started taking notice, and from there, Madlib took off as a producer, eventually working with legendary artists like Jay Dilla, Erica Badu, and Kanye West, among many others. And he would help make Stones Throw Records arguably the most respected independent hip-hop label of all time. But it was his collaboration with MF Doom, the album Mad Villainy, that would truly cement him as one of hip-hop's top producers. That is for next time. For now, I want to dive into what it was that made Madlib's style of production so attractive to so many people, especially in the early mid-2000s when bling rap was everywhere. A lot of millennials who had grown up on early and mid-90s hip-hop were now in their late teens or early 20s, maybe in college, experimenting with drugs, and looking for something more aesthetically connected to the hip-hop that they grew up on. And Madlib was able to deliver that because he was tapping into something that had slipped through the cracks, something incredibly important within the DNA of hip-hop. And before I tell you exactly what that thing is, I should first mention that Madlib grew up in a ridiculously musical family. His parents were both professional musicians, and his uncle, John Faddis, is a very, very famous jazz trumpeter. There were legendary jazz musicians like Dee Dee Bridgewater and Dizzy Gillespie just hanging out in his backyard. But unlike most of the adults around him, Madlib didn't find his talent in conventional instruments, at least not at first. What a young Otis Jackson Jr. was obsessed with more than anything else was records, old, obscure vinyl records. Madlib was becoming what we in the hip-hop world call a crate digger. A crate digger, or loop digger, is someone who constantly seeks out record stores, secondhand stores, yard sales, or any place that might sell or contain vinyl records. And then they literally dig through the crates looking for rare albums, hoping to find good samples for new beats. It's the loop digger. Man, it's the loop digger. Excuse me. Ah, uh, yes, you looking for something? No prices on these records, right? Oh, the jazz yeah, records? Oh, uh, those aren't marked yeah, yet. 
But if you look over here, you happen to have any Stanley Cowell. In the early days of hip-hop, in the mid-70s, DJs had to be crate diggers. There was no other option. If you wanted to stay in business, you had to find records with good, funky, danceable breakbeats. In short, the birth of hip-hop was also the birth of an entire subculture of people passionately devoted to finding records that were funky, rare, and perhaps most importantly, just plain different. This is a tune by the French jazz funk band Cortex from their 1975 album Trapeau Blue. This album was completely off the radar for hip-hop producers before Mad Libs sampled one of the songs from it and turned it into a beat for MF Doom in 2004. There's only one beer left. Rappers screaming all in our ears like we're deaf. Tempt me. Do a number on a label. Now, Cortex is one of the most sampled bands of the late 2000s and 2010s. Their samples show up in music by big-time rappers like Tyler the Creator, Wiz Khalifa, Rick Ross. Madlib was bringing crate digging and sample hunting back to the forefront of hip-hop. And he was doing it in a way that would eventually influence and change the mainstream. Many of his most famous and beloved beats came from sources that previous generations of crate diggers had ignored, like the Brazilian pianist and composer Osmar Milito. or the weird and cerebral British prog rock band, Gentle Giant. My ways are strange They'll never change They stay One of my personal favorites, the 1970s Indian singer Lata Mangeshkar. Now, all my sample nerds out there might know that Lata Mangeshkar was being sampled prominently by a few big-name producers around this same time. 
most notably Bloodshy and Avant's production on a little song you might have heard called Toxic. And then there was also DJ Quick's beat for the song Addictive by Truth Hurts. But in those songs, the sample was being tweaked or re-recorded to fit into an otherwise polished production style. Madlib, on the other hand, was building his whole production sound around the dirtiness and dustiness of the original samples. More than any producer besides maybe Jay Dilla, Madlib was always reaching into both the past and the future at the same time, whenever he made a beat. And the most obvious example of this modern retro approach to beat making can be seen in another one of his side projects, Yesterday's New Quintet. Originally marketed as a funky, free jazz group of sorts, Yesterday's New Quintet is now one of the earliest examples of what we call lo-fi hip-hop, a genre that 15 years later would be enshrined in hugely popular livestream YouTube channels with anime characters studying or reading books. And of course, knowing what we know about Madlib's childhood, it's not surprising that he had a sweet spot when it came to fusing jazz and hip-hop aesthetics. Another funny thing about yesterday's new quintet, although there were technically five names in the group, it was usually Madlib playing every instrument. And we're going to see something very similar with Doom in the next episode. That is, the use of fake names in order to channel different personalities within one musical universe. And like with Madlib's other alter ego, Quasimodo, anyone that thought this was just a silly experiment or that he was just playing around or being fickle quickly realized that he was actually onto something big. For his 2003 album Shades of Blue, he was given access to the master recording vault of the most famous jazz record label of all time, Blue Note Records. So, to finish out today's episode, I want to talk about one of the best examples of Madlib combining the aesthetics of 60s jazz with the aesthetics of hip-hop. The song is Figaro from the Mad Villainy album, and it's constructed around two samples, both taken from the legendary jazz organist Dr. Lonnie Smith's 1967 album Finger Lickin' Good. Let's listen to one of the tunes from that album called Janine. Now, what you're about to hear is something that's often referred to as a shout chorus. Shout choruses are best known as being a fundamental part of big band jazz music. However, you do get the occasional shout chorus in jazz combo music as well, particularly as a way of framing or announcing a drum solo. (laughs) 
So Madlib is sampling that shout chorus for the intro of Figaro. But in this case, it's not serving as a fanfare for Jimmy Lovelace's drum solo, like in the original recording. Instead, it's going to be used to introduce something very different. So let's talk about the fact that on paper, this intro shouldn't really work. It's not in the same tempo as the song. It's much faster, and if anything, intros are usually a bit slower to give the main beat of a song a little more excitement. But very rarely is an intro faster than the main beat. It's also in a totally different key than the main beat of the song. But yet, it still works. Why is that exactly? Well, I'm not sure I can answer that question specifically, but when Doom performs this live, he or his hype man will often enthusiastically yell out during the intro, it's game show time, which kind of gives us an idea what the function of this intro is. It does kind of sound like something that would play at the beginning of an old game show, or perhaps while the curtain is rising at the very beginning of a big theatrical production. And also, it contrasts very nicely with the dark and pulsating vibe of the main beat, which is based around another sample from Dr. Lonnie Smith's Finger Lickin' Good album, from the song In the Beginning. Right off the top, the most noticeable thing here is that the original sample, which is in one time signature, has been chopped up and replayed in a different time signature. And also it's been digitally distorted using Madlib's trusty Boss SP-303 sampler. But there are even some weirder things going on in this beat. See if you notice that stuttering kick drum sound that happens on the downbeat of every measure, as well as that bell sound from the original sample that starts to take on a life of its own as the beat progresses. crazy thing is that pretty much everything I've covered in this episode, Quasimodo, Yesterday's New Quintet, the Doom collaboration, the Jay Dilla collaboration, the Blue Note album, all of them were made in the span of just about five years. And that's just the stuff I could fit into this mini episode. Madlib was making so much music so quickly, 
hardly ever sleeping, like the beats and ideas were just falling out of him. This is just another reason why he was able to revitalize hip-hop in a way that no other producer could during this time. With, of course, the one exception being possibly his friend and musical partner, Jay Dilla. But, of course, that will have to wait for another episode. Tune in next time for part two of the MF Doom story, where we dive into his verse on the song Figaro. And please hit me up on social media or send me an email at anatomyofaverse at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>